0: Test one, two, one, two, three, four. Sorry, let's start over. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for this next hour and talk of the towns, and this, this show is not going to be a dialogue because we're taping this show ahead of time. The coast of Maine both The physical places and the communities that abide here have inspired writers of every sort, and as readers, we're enriched by their insights and their observations. In his new book, Barons, writer Brian Robbins presents a cast of characters brought to life in his 20 years of columns for the Commercial Fisheries News. That cast includes people, real and imagined, and sometimes the boats they build and fish. Their stories ring with saltwater wisdom, humor and empathy for the human condition and today we're happy to welcome brian to our show to talk about um his, the, uh, what i say the book the people and the place welcome oh. brian ron it's so neat to be here thank you thanks right. for having me and, and it's, it's a really a welcome back because you and your brother stevie and and some other folks came and and uh, shared uh, uh, kind of a preview of uh, a film that was going to be rebroadcast 20 years after it was first filmed called salt of the earth
1: yes uh, we were here last september and uh That sitting in with you here was kind of the beginning of the of a a week of. uh
0: God, I don't even know a word for it. It was great. <laughs> it if was you ask my
1: brother, he'd say it's the greatest time of my life. You it know?
0: was a celebration, it seems like of of uh, what that sh- that film which was a documentary um approach to um uh, fishing, fishing issues, community issues on the coast of Maine and it's kind of interesting to take a look back 20 years and say what's what's the same, what's changed.
1: Absolutely. It's scary. Mm, scary. Mm. And, and, you know, personally, of course, we've kind of we've kind of held up pretty well. I, I You know, I didn't think I looked a whole, a whole lot different. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. But, uh, you know, the biggest single thing for us, Ron, was if nobody had ever seen that movie, and it's been on public television, it's been shown at festivals and around the world, mm. actually, if nobody had ever seen it, to have our father, Steve Robbins Sr., who passed away in 1995, to have power on film with us man that's the most precious thing in the world right know? right so uh, quite a powerful thing i hadn't seen the film for uh, years mm. until we watched it uh, up at the uh, collins center in arnold last september and pretty powerful stuff to right. see uh, see it on the big screen you right.
0: know well the ocean and and uh, family have been so, so much a part of of your life uh, mm. in, inspirations. Uh tell us a little bit about growing up and and how those two things have intertwined in your life.
1: Well, you know, I think anybody that has exposure to the work ethic, uh for instance, is just taken for granted, mm. you know, mm. a- around the waterfront if if you are exposed to that. At a young age you're not going to fuss about you know things later on uh, you know if if, if you, it, i mean it's just what you take for granted every day you mm. just get up you nobody slaps you around and pushes you out the door you don't punch in a time clock. you drive yourself to go if you're you know day fishing and and um the experience of you know you, you can't fuss about. <laughs> You're cold and you're wet, you know. That's that, you know. When we were making offshore lobster trips years ago, it's it's Tuesday, uh my butt's wet, I'm tired. We'll probably lay down on Thursday. Right, you know right. And uh or you know, if you've had to crawl up in the rigging and beat the ice off the thing uh on the way because she's is so cold and she's she's making ice, you've you've had to do that to keep from, you know, whatever happening. Mm-hmm. You're not gonna fuss about uh you know, you're out of paperclips, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it puts right, things right. In perspective. That
0: perspective. And, um, is the C the, the master or the mistress then of your, of, of one's life or is oh, there, a, it's a co co-creation somehow? No, no.
1: That C in control. I mean, you're making decisions, but ultimately you're not going to outwit it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you lose your respect for it, that's when I think folks get into trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother, Stevie, is the greatest man I've ever been around on the water. Mm. and uh, That's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I've sent my son offshore with him. Uh, Jeremy made trips with my brother when, when he was 10 years old. And I mm-hmm. never gave it another thought because mm-hmm. he was with my brother. You right. know, he's just a great skipper. Uh, but even my brother would tell you, uh, anybody that tells you they've never been scared out on the water is either lying to you. or they're foolish. Right. They could be foolish. Right, you know. right.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about, um, your brother was a little bit older than you. And Fourteen so that, years. Fourteen years, so that you... Where kind of, I come
1: from, that's almost a generation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, th- and this is the, this is the Deer Isle Stoning area. You were, yes. you were growing up, you were seeing him go out on his own vessel, because he had a vessel young. You, uh, did you he, aspire to that? Did you want he, to go with him? Stevie was, Stevie was, when I started
1: elementary school, Stevie actually was on research ships down in the South Pole for a number of years. So he was more this, I mean, that even made him bigger in my eyes because he wasn't Uh around, right? But he came home, uh, I think, to to stay when I was in maybe sixth grade, something Mm -hmm. like that. So from then on, fifth grade, sixth grade, from then on, my summers and after school weekends, when I was working, it was with my brother rather Mm -hmm. than my father. My Mm -hmm. father was a little bit older. Mm -hmm. Our father was Mm -hmm. a little bit older and... You know he was kind of ramping down when mm-hmm. when I got old enough to actually work and contribute, for instance, my father and my uncle James had always gone herring seining mm. you know mm. uh for years and years but um uh, they they were they were getting out of that you know i, I most of my time spent as a kid herring seining I was just a little chubby fellow you know mm. and then watching the fish in the pocket, you know but um it was lessons I learned from my brother, and and he taught me how to work. But like last night, I'm at Hannaford, you mm-hmm. know, and it strikes me when I'm taking stuff out of the shopping cart at the checkout. Use both hands. Hmm. Hmm. You yep. see somebody leaning.
0: Well, why? Why, you, why? Why? Where did that come from?
1: That was my brother. It was like picking traps when okay. you're picking picking lobsters out of a trap. Yep. Use both hands. Hmm. Why wouldn't you? Right. you know? right. I mean, what you get right. the other one for? Right. If you're so tired or sick, you, you have to hold yourself up. We'll take your in. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. in. Mean? Yep. I, I hear those things. Mm-hmm. If, if, if you're standing there and people are working around you and you just find yourself standing there, well, uh, you're not looking. Right. You know? it's, right. it's things like that.
0: And you didn't always learn just because your brother told you these things. You learned from experience, at least according to your book. Oh,
1: no, absolutely. <laughs> it was working with him. And, right. and uh, no, you were you were right there in the thick of it. And you learned uh, that was just, those are lessons. They apply to everything. Mm. They really do. Mm. They mm. really do. Mm.
0: Um, so I... I so when, I, you, when you went fishing, what, 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 what was your actual um, experience fishing? Different kinds of, of uh, fishing? Primarily, to to... We, we lobstered. Okay. My
1: brother, Stevie, was in this, in this studio. He'd mm-hmm. walk down the length of that hall, and by the time he'd get to the, the other end, he'd be shaking a lobster off his foot <laughs> saying, Christ, where'd that come from? You know? <laughs> um, he can catch a lobster. But uh, we went inshore lobstering while I was in high school. I graduated 76, in 77, Joel White in Brooklyn Boatyard. Mm-hmm. God bless Joel, mm-hmm. uh, finished off. It was the first 44 Stanley Hull out of the mold. the Shirley and Freeman. They mm-hmm. finished that mm-hmm. off, and we, we were going offshore lobstering, and mm-hmm. we uh, started on Cash's Ledge. We don't have to go into this. Mm-hmm. Folks, get a chat out. But we ended up uh, uh, off in, down in Croll Basin, George's Basin, that deep water just to the gnarled edge of... Uh, 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 George's Bank and uh, one summer we were right on top of George's mm-hmm. Bank itself um, so biggest part of my time with my brother was offshore lobstering mm. Yeah, mm. Um, trip fishing uh-huh. gone oh gracious four or five days anyway and sometimes longer
0: Yeah, yeah. at some point yeah. you began to experiment with this notion that you might do some writing and that probably started early on, high school or, or grade school. You had some teachers. Actu- tell us tell yeah. us about that experience. Of...
1: Actually, when my brother was down the South Pole when I was mm. little, I used to write these books, write uh-huh. these stories. And uh, oh, God bless my mother and father because it must have cost them, I don't know how much, and, and uh, you know, airmail stamps to send the things down to, you know, Chile, I guess. You uh-huh. know, right. arenas well. Chile or wherever. And, you know, and get in off a off a 60-day loop to – the South Poland Act. back. That'd be this uh, package for my brother. But anyway, yeah, I mean, it, where I, you know, where we live, the whole coast of Maine, there's all these great storytellers, mm-hmm. you know. I, pff, the, the people that get paid for doing that stuff, they can't hold a candle to the real thing, right? <laughs> but um, writing was something I always liked to do, but just nature of the beast, you didn't talk about that a whole lot, you mm-hmm. know, down mm-hmm. around home. I mean, mm-hmm. Uh, growing up, um, you know, so by the time the 70s came around, I'm a teenager, and you don't tell anybody mm-hmm. that you write. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'd be better saying, you know, my mother's got a couple dresses that really fit me well, you know? <laughs> I mean, it, it was one, but I had two teachers in high school, mm. uh, God bless them, Claire Grindle, hello, Mrs. Grindle, and the late Margaret Vaughn, she mm. passed away a few years, uh, who <laughs> it was like my little secret with uh-huh. them, you know, and, and and both of them were very encouraging and, and both told me, right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for whatever reason. If it's for nobody else except yourself, right. right. Uh, I've, I've, I've gone in later years, I was up at the high school for career day with mm-hmm. – with, with the uh, groups and that's what i'd tell kids you mm-hmm. know right doesn't matter if anybody else in the world if you want to write right mm-hmm. you know and
0: so you'd grown up hearing stories and telling stories retelling stories mm-hmm. is that was that part of your inspiration to to write them down yeah
1: well you know sometimes you have feelings about stuff or sometimes there are um, uh, you know the fictional things for instance it's like uh, well, Ron, I don't know, you could do an inkblot test and probably get a lot out of this. but uh, You know, you've got these little movies in your head, mm. and uh, sometimes you don't know how they're going to end, you know. But, uh, geez, you, you just, you almost need to write them down. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, isn't it silly that I don't have good words to describe this writing thing? But that's that's the way it is. And it was, uh, oh, you know, i there are books that I studied. There's books that I read when I was in my teens that I've probably read, I don't know, Ron, eight or ten times right, since right, then. I mean, right. I just love the the craft. Right. right. Um, I can't. You give me a piece of wood and a nail and a hammer, I'll split it. I'm, I'm terrible at that. <laughs> But I could I could write about it. Uh huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> draw a cartoon yeah. of it. Yeah.
0: We're we're talking with Brian Robbins, who's um, a columnist with Commercial Fisheries News, and he's written um, all those put those many of those columns together in a book called Barons. Um, tell us a little about your connection with Commercial Fisheries News. Um, how did you? Robin Alden was was the editor publisher at that time. She was time. the
1: publisher at that time. Um, Sue Jones was the editor. And Rick Martin was general manager, and Rick is the publisher now. And and uh, we'll talk about maybe we can talk about mm-hmm. Rick in a minute because there, there would not be a book mm-hmm. without Rick Martin and, mm-hmm. and his and his lovely wife Fran. Uh, well, yeah, lovely wife Fran. <laughs> and uh, but I had written a letter to the editor, which I sent to Commercial Fisheries News and a number of commercial fishing publications at the time. W O U was a station that we could pick up on the single sideband radio mm. offshore. You get far enough offshore at the time. I mean, you got to put this in perspective. We're talking, you know, early 80s and, you know, when they cell phones, when, uh, you had the VHF or the single sideband. And the VHF, we get far enough offshore. The VHF was only good to talk to other boats mm-hmm. that you could almost see on the horizon, you know, mm-hmm. but the single sideband, you could Haul things in from uh, quite a distance. Anyway, there was a uh, regular broadcast at either ten twenty, uh, excuse me, eleven twenty, and five twenty, or twelve twenty and six twenty, depending on uh, you know daylight savings uh, weather broadcast from this WOU uh, out of Boston. Hmm. It was through the Boston Marine Operator. There was talk of discontinuing that radio uh, that weather broadcast on the radio. Well, that was a big deal to us because we hmm. didn't have. We had nothing else. We Mm -hmm. had grandfather's old barometer that we used to tap, you know. But that was the only uh, weather broadcast that we had to rely on. So it was kind of scary to think they were going to take it away. So anyway, that inspired me. I wrote this letter about how important that broadcast was to us, uh, which was published maybe in more than one uh, publication. I can't remember now. But anyway, after that... uh, robin god bless her contacted me and said uh, have you ever considered writing mm. and i sweated for a little bit admitting you know thinking whether i should admit about uh, having a secret thing mm-hmm. but um i i went down and talked to him about you know i was still on the boat mm-hmm. uh, but uh, maybe doing some freelance stuff mm-hmm. yeah yeah
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that's that's, That's where I the started. initial initial connection came and,
0: from, and as as you went, as you wrote, you got signals that that was the right path for you. Yeah, the first thing I think the first thing
1: that I did as a freelancer for Commercial Fisheries News was a profile about Everett Billings down mm. in Stonington. God bless him; he's gone now, but mm. Everett was a sweet, sweet man, a great man with a piece of twine. It's very mending twine. He worked on the draggers out of Rockland for years. And uh, did a lot of stuff on the water. But a nice, just a mellow, sweet, good man. And talking about uh, the old days of fish dragon. And I think that was the first first thing I wrote for the paper. I think the second thing I wrote for them sometime later was um, a little bit of foolishness about uh, cooks. Mm-hmm. Board the boat, on, on boats. Which I think the title I title of it was something like uh, They That Go Down to the Sea in Stoves. But I'm, I'm not sure of that. It was something like that. But it was foolish.
0: Mm. Yeah. Some of the characters that you've kind of um, created, I'm sure they're based on real people, well maybe not, um, mm-hmm. are pretty well known to people who have read your columns. Eddie plugs and Ross and Monroe Claire. Tell us a little bit about some of those folks and then we'll maybe hear a song.
1: Yeah, well, Eddie... Eddie's been there from pretty early on. Um, people always ask, you know, who, who is Eddie Plugs? And I think Eddie, anybody that's been around the water knows an Eddie Plugs, or they know some people. If you took this and this, you've right. got an Eddie Plugs. Right. You can build them. You know, right. it's a very modular thing. <laughs> and uh, But he's, he's a driver. In the beginning, the early stories with Eddie and his brother in law slash stern man Ross. Uh, Eddie was prone to some odd uh, mood fluctuations and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, went with the territory. Over the years, uh, Monroe Sinclair showed up at one point, and uh, uh, we can talk about Monroe a little more in a minute, but Monroe was kind of an odd duck, but he was a lot wiser than than you might think. You know, there's a lot of people like that in this world. Uh, folks write them off pretty quickly, but... Just listen, mm. you know? mm. and in the end, there's a lot of the adventures that uh, Eddie and Monroe have had these last few years. Where uh, had to say at the end, just who the uh, you know, who the foolish one is. Right? <laughs> um, eh, there was in the beginning one of my early characters was uh, uh, Josh Ballard. And I laugh now because at the time I wrote about this Josh Bullard, this this old crusty character who was, God, he was in his 50s. Right? <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, on I'm right. 53 right. now. <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, it's, it's it, I, I don't know what I was thinking. But mm. although I guess I look at. Josh and, and uh, some of the stuff he was going through and I where I am you know what I how I feel about things now maybe I wasn't that far off you right. know but I don't know was, I, I don't think of myself as crusty so <laughs> that's the issue but um, uh, Josh was pretty well settled being Josh for, for a while and uh, in the beginning he would now and then have a he'd even take a drink now and then but not not out of sorts. But um, there was uh, a woman that worked at the local, local uh, tavern, uh, uh, Dot Nickerson, and uh, she, was, she was pretty wise and sweet in her own way, too. And it took a while for Josh to realize how we really felt about him. But um, after we, we got a few columns under our belt, you know, they'd be there every month or two, mm-hmm. or maybe a little period of time went by, but after, after a while... He just came to terms with, you know, what am I? I gotta be honest with myself. Yeah, I really do love this woman. Mm-hmm. So, there old crusty Josh and and Dottie, who was a widow, um, got married, mm. and uh, mm. God bless
0: them. They, 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 it was all right. So, and there and was it, some music at the at the they wedding.
1: They did. They had uh, one of the chapters in the book uh, uh, is about their wedding day and uh we kind of in the in the story we kind of splice back and forth scenes from that that moment uh uh, from that day uh with uh lyrics from a willie nelson song hands on the wheel Mm -hmm. and uh oh this song man i remember the first time i heard this song years ago and uh I don't know why, but uh, between my brother and I, there's been a lot of things in our life uh, where the song seems to have been appropriate. And from uh, uh, joy-filled days to... I've played this at a couple of memorial services mm. for people and uh, oh, whatever, but it's not a sad song. It's, I think it's a lovely song. And I'm glad that Josh and Dottie picked it out, you know? And uh, I think uh, there's a scene... Towards the end of that chapter, where they're dancing to it. And uh, I think, because Dottie's quite wise, she says to Josh that uh, they should dance backwards. Because they <laughs> say that uh, that way the music will last forever. You know? mm. So, I don't know, you want to let Let's, hear, let's hear that. Yeah, yeah let's well, hear it. We could do that. I tell you, we had a, we had a little musical, uh, we had a little guitar calamity uh, yesterday, I knew I was going to bring a guitar, but uh, the good fellas at Northern Kingdom Music over in Rockport, and folks, I, I, this is not a paid, <laughs> 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 they, they, they're just great, they've been great to myself and my kids and all of us for, for many years, and they helped they, uh, they me out, so thank you, Javi and Mac. <laughs> Ah, uh, thank you, thank
0: you. Brian Robbins, um, columnist and writer for Commercial Fisheries News. Brian has recently published a book called Barrens and uh, we're here to talk about his book, uh, the people and the place uh, that he writes about um, in that book, in those columns, and uh, glad to have him share some music as well, Hands on the Wheel, a Willie Nelson song.
1: Good old Willie Nelson. Right. They're not going to lock him up, are they?
0: I, well, we don't know. We don't it's, know. It's, the story is not fully written, <laughs> I guess. Um, some of the characters you write about aren't people. They're boats. Um, yes. <laughs> well. And, and uh, it seems like people respond to um, stories about boats pretty well. If, uh, and I don't care how casual your relationship is
1: with the water. Um, at some point, I think just about anybody. Spends any amount of time around the water. There's, 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 And I feel sorry if it doesn't work this <laughs> way for them, but there's, there's a bond you develop. I mean, that boat, in the case of a commercial fisherman, mm. that boat is your livelihood. Right. Yes. But that boat also, it brings you home. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. um, over the years, doing projects for Commercial Fisheries News, it's heartbreaking sometimes to be around a new boat and see it maybe just a year or so, and, and see one that maybe somebody hasn't taken care of, and mm-hmm. or, boy, nothing worse. I mean, uh, nothing worse than seeing a boat that's been, um, you know, gone ashore and had its, had its had its hat tore out of it, you know, uh, or a boat that's burned or something like that. Boy, it's it's uh, awful. Off is the
0: same as someone looking yes. at a home that, yes. th- that has been burned yes. or not taken care of. Or, Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. The bones are there and, and you don't have much else. Yes,
1: the bones That's a great way of putting it. Right. You're good at this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, talk about a couple of the boats that, that you've written about. Um, uh,
1: the Amazing Grace, right. I guess, was one early on uh, uh, when I was uh, at Commercial Fisheries News uh, full time in the beginning. We um, used to cover the Lobster boat race is pretty mm-hmm, heavy, mm-hmm. and uh, that's one of those things where, uh, you know, that can be a dangerous obsession, <laughs> you know, we don't, but uh, the Amazing Grace um, was, a again, a total, totally fictitious boat and the crew, but, you know, it's characters that you right. cross paths with one way or the other, and... Um, yeah, they had some they, uh, there were a number of amazing grace stories but uh they, they usually it wasn't just you know, loud engines and all that stuff there was usually some thread of right something i'm tapping my hat right, right. <laughs> right um and so we we had some fun with that and then uh over the years uh eddie plugs has had uh, a couple of boats um there would be these um uh, Life-changing experiences, and uh, oddly enough, Eddie had two boats flattened uh, by meteors that fell from the sky, uh, and he had to just deal with that—some big, terrible thing that he had to uh, just
0: figure out how to deal with that and keep on going. The meteors and, and other things. Why don't you? Why don't you share with us Monroe's toe? Um, oh boy! From, from your book *Barons*, it's just been published.
1: Well, this is this is actually the first time that Monroe Sinclair. Uh, was in a, in a, it was introduced to uh, the Baron's column, and uh, this column was written back in 1998. And uh, after a while, you realize that the best thing about having Monroe around was that he made Eddie Plugs look sane. Although, <laughs> you know, it was it, Eddie. Eddie's known Monroe actually since they were kids. Mm-hmm, so he, mm-hmm. he and he's always listened to Monroe, even though he's, people might not. Assume, exactly, yeah. and even Eddie himself is questioned, ah, but he usually, so. Yeah. Um, so we've, we've, the scene starts with just a, a typical spring sort of thing, actually. Eddie plugged, squatted in front of his pickup and peered beneath the front axle, noting the lack of daylight between it and the mud it was nestled in. He slowly straightened up with a sigh. Oh, I think I found the only soft spot in the whole friggin' yard. His loyal stern man, brother-in-law Ross, had to agree with him. Even with the lobster gear they brought down to the shore unloaded off of Eddie's pickup, it was just plain mired. And the make-matters-worse, it was a Sunday, it was getting late in the day, and it was starting to rain. Now, good timing, I call it, said Eddie, mostly to himself. Ross almost made the mistake of agreeing with him, but thought better of it. We'll have to tow it out, he said instead. Eddie glanced around the empty, muddy packing lot at the head of the loft. Yeah, with what? Ross was desperately trying to come up with an answer when the voice behind them said, You could use the boat. Staddled, Eddie and Ross spun around to find Monroe Sinclair, dressed in his usual attire of battered cowboy hat, coveralls, Smokey's greater shows stenciled across the front, and galoshes. "'Hey!' he grinned, tapping the brim of his cowboy hat and flashing a set of teeth that looked like the finish line flag at Daytona. Most everybody in town liked Monroe, although there were some who felt he was a tad cross-threaded mentally." Many even referred to Monroe as the village idiot, a title which he really wasn't offended by. In fact, Monroe felt it gave him a good reason to go to town meetings just in case he should be called upon to give some sort of official village idiot report. The fact of the matter was that Monroe had a wicked imagination and was prone to being easily distracted. Hours that could have been spent gainfully employed were filled with fantasies of being a U-boat commander or spent trying to play Foggy Mountain Breakdown on a two-string banjo retrieved from the town dump. Monroe could reel off names of constellations in the night sky and recite the cylinder firing order of every car American Motors ever made, but he didn't have a clue who the current president was or how to dial a telephone. All traits which, truth be known, Eddie Plugs actually admired. Ross could tell, by the way, Eddie was cocking his head that he was actually giving Monroe's suggestion some thought. I suppose, said Eddie, scratching his chin. The only problem is we don't have far to go and we'd be hauling the truck right towards the edge of the dock. Eddie pointed to the big stones which made up the face of the old wharf. Monroe shook his head. No, Eddie, not that way. You run a rope from the truck, he pointed to a big oak further up the driveway, back up around that tree and then off to the boat. Remember that big anchor line you've got down forward? You had it out last summer when you were painting the boat. Monroe was right. The big polypropylene line in the forepeak of the Black Crow was stout enough to do the job, and even though Ross could hear faint warning bells in the back of his head, he went along with the plan, dutifully following the orders given by his skipper. So it was that Ross found himself standing in the stern of the Black Crow, paying out the tow line while keeping an eye on Monroe, who was sitting in Eddie's truck, grinning like a Well, a a madman, actually. The line drew up tight, and Ross waved for Eddie to lay on the power, which he did. As the Black Crow's diesel began to roar, Ross watched for a sign that Eddie's truck was beginning to budge. Nothing happened. Eddie laid on the throttle a little bit more. The pickup wiggled a little, but it didn't appear that the wheels turned at all. Ross suddenly noticed that the truck's brake lights were on. (laughs) And it looked like Monroe was fumbling with the radio trying to tune in a station. Hey! Ross hollered, waving his arms to get Monroe's attention. Eddie throttled back, thinking something was wrong. What? he yelled, throwing the Black Crow out of gear and walking aft. Suddenly, the brake lights went out, the truck's engine gunned a couple times, and it roared clear of the muck hole in reverse. Monroe, who had successfully dialed in a radio talk show concerning pets from outer space, had shifted into R instead of 1, and the rear wheels had suddenly found a place to bite onto. No! yelled Eddie, scrambling to the black crow's controls, but it was too late. He was taken off his feet as the black crow was yanked stern first towards shore. The resulting misfortune made a heck of a picture on the front page of the local newspaper that week. Splashed across four columns was a big black and white aerial photo showing the black crow burrowed stern first, high and dry up on the beach, with a rope running, humming tight from her transom to a tree up on the shore and back down to the front bumper of Eddie's pickup truck, which hung off the edge of the dock. Village idiot involved in freak accident, read the headline. Monroe carried the clipping around proudly in the headband of his cowboy hat for years afterwards. Eddie Plugs spent almost as long explaining who the headline was actually referring to, and Ross denied all knowledge of the incident.
0: (laughs) In case you're wondering, you're not tuned to Boat Talk this morning. This is Talk of the Towns, and we're delighted to have Brian Robbins with us to talk about um, his life and and how it's kind of come through in, in his book, Barons, um, Brian, I know that uh, family has meant a lot to you in and the, the the stories of family come through so authentically in in um, your columns. Thank you um, You write about uh, your parents, your brother um, your children um, That must be a little bit of a delicate balance because you you are proud of them you're glad for them, but Absolutely. you don 't want to kind of invade their privacy either it's um, one of the reasons why i
1: felt great about coming here today mm-hmm. was the way that for instance you acknowledge <laughs> you okay. know what it's like it's funny i'll write things that are pretty personal and um i know i mean i know where they're going you know mm-hmm. but i i uh sometimes i have a had job talking about them. you mm-hmm. know publicly after that um probably should see somebody about that <laughs> but um uh I mean, I I, we had the greatest parents in the world. uh, Pa passed away in 1995, and Mom passed away in 2003. Um, They were both uh, they were patient, gentle, humor. Uh, We didn't have a whole lot when we were growing up, but we didn't know that. Mm -hmm. We thought we -hmm. we never lacked for a thing, you know. And uh, we just had great, great folks, and uh, you know, I got the greatest kids in the world and i i learned from them you know um but yeah um i don't think uh, i hope i haven't but i don't think i've ever um embarrassed anybody that i've written i've written about friends um i, I had one friend emery herrick uh, a, a good friend of my brother and i's and i actually uh, wrote a column about him um uh, just a month or two before uh, he, he passed away from cancer, mm-hmm. and uh, the family uh, asked if I would read the column at his, at his service, you know.
0: Well, it seems like in, in those columns, in the columns of your family, you're mm-hmm. saying things to people, perhaps back to the, your family members, that um, they need to hear. And you know yeah. it's important for those stories. I'd like you to read. Um, uh, he guides me along, which is a story um, about your father, yes. and uh, um, that that relationship that you had with him. And, and uh, I'd just like you to, to share that with us. Thank you.
1: I will. Uh, one thing you know, I I can't t- I wish I could tell you what the source of this was. I don't know if I read it or heard mm-hmm. it a long time ago. But I remember somebody saying, give them flowers where they can still smell them. So <laughs> that's right. um, I think that that's something we all ought to try to do. But. Mm. Um, I wrote this in 1995, uh, just after my uh, father passed away. My father, Stephen Harold Robin Sr., passed away this past May, and I miss him something fierce. There was a time, as I'm supposing everybody goes through, that I was easily aggravated with my father because I felt that Pa just didn't get it. I had to grow older to come to appreciate him for the treasure that he was. Unfortunately, Pa grew older too. But he never lost his humor and he never forgot how to tell a story and he never forgot how to listen either. And that's very important because as I sit here, I know that Pa knew exactly how I felt about him because I told him. And he listened, and I guess I'm lucky. By the time I was old enough to work, really work, Pa and my Uncle James were all done with their years of heron singing. My brother, Stevie, 14 years older than me, was right in the thick of some of the best and worst of it. Me, I was just a chubby little guy peering over the rail of a sardine carrier watching the fish flip around in the pocket after a shutoff. Other than that, sailing for me wasn't much more than the occasional Saturday morning spent bailing dories. But there were a couple times when I was little that Pa took me on what seemed like the greatest of all adventures. Just me and him staying aboard the same boat, Lucky Star, moored in whatever cove they were tending with the stop twine outfit. Looking back, I know now that those were undoubtedly times when the heron weren't exactly jumping around out of the water. Chances are probably... Pa could have taken the night off without feeling like he missed the big shutoff. But we were there, me and him. Ma had already fed us supper, but we ate again aboard the same boat because, well, you know, that's what you did. Nothing tastes quite like a macaroni and cheese loaf sandwich slathered with mustard, the focceau style of French's that nobody ever quite tightens the lid down on so it has that rind of, of deeper yellow crust around the rim on Wonder Bread. Wind that India with a slab of rat cheese that has been loosely wrapped in butcher paper, sweaty from the heat, and a lukewarm bottle of ginger ale that's been hanging over the side of the Sena in a twine sack, and you've got it all. It'd really make you wonder as you wipe the mustard from the corners of your mouth what the poor and unfortunate kids of the world were eating. I remember rolling into one of the upper bunks. A lower one wasn't half as thrilling. Burrowing into a sleeping bag and waiting for the best part. I'd be awake when Pa's feet hit the foc'sle floor a little bit later. Without a lot of talking, we'd go topside and ease down aboard of the big workhorse outboard, the yawl boat, Pa called it. And once he started the motor for me, we'd cast off. I didn't know a whole lot about what was going on, except that you had to be quiet. The old Evinrude never run above a dead idol for this Pat. I was on the tiller, and Pa was up in the bow. He'd have the feeler stick, the long pole, long wooden pole that was used to feel if there were any fish, and if there were, how big a body of them there was. It may sound primitive to some, but I've been told more than once that old man Steve could tell you how many fish you had within a couple hogsheads with his feeler stick. So I guess it did the job. Around the cove, we'd idle. I'd focus all of my attention on Parr's silhouette up in the bow, when he wanted me to bear one way or the other, he'd simply lean his shoulders to that side. All I had to do was keep still and pay attention, and Pa would guide me along. We never found any fish the few times I went with Pa, but that wasn't the point as far as I was concerned. And you know, now that I think about it, I wonder if Pa didn't feel the same way. Through the years, I'd look at this person or that person, usually some hard driver, and I'd say to myself, I'd like to be like him. He's making things happen. But recently, I've realized that all the bulls in the world could never be as much of an influence on me as power was. And still is. There's only so much you can smash your way through. The personal gales and squalls I've seen over the last couple years weren't thwarted one bit by letting myself get wound up. The key to survival seems to be patience. And nobody had any more patience when it was needed than our father. At the worst of his sickness, and during the upset days following his death, if I'd asked myself, what would Pa do? What would he want me, how would he want me to handle this? Then I could get along. And it has worked ever since. I quote from him, I bet, every day. It might be something that makes a lot of sense, or it might be something quite foolish. And even that in itself is worth quite a lot. Is life without laughter wouldn't be much at all now, would it? So, even though he's gone, Pa will never really leave me. As I meander along, he's right up there on the bow. And when I need him to, he just quietly leans one way or the other, and he guides me along.
0: Mm, Thank you, Brian. Brian Robbins, reading from his book, Barons, which is published by Northwind Publishing in Belfast, and uh, he's here with us here on Talk of the Towns, talking about the book, uh, the people he writes about, and the places that he's written about in um, his book, The Barons. Um, Brian, you've seen some changes in the communities that uh, that you've observed and you're a part of. Um, a little bit about that some of those changes and and you reflect some of those changes because you often write in in ways that bridge the past with the present really yeah i think so (laughs) i haven't been paying attention i
1: think yeah you know technology certainly has changed uh our fishing world um And there's, my gracious man, there's equipment aboard the average inshore lobster boat now that, you know, hardly puts town out of sight that uh, you wouldn't see in the wheelhouses of, you know, uh, uh, Grand Banks uh, draggers when I was a kid, you know. Mm. But um, that's whatever. Sometimes you can say, well, maybe we've got too smart. Mm. But um, there's still – there's those kind of changes – but there's still, I think, around the waterfront, under it all, and all the regulations and all the things that have changed. Man, when I was a kid, it was regulated by how early you got up, mm-hmm. how late you stayed out you know, down the bay. Um, there's still somebody gets in a mess. And I don't care if it's the fellow that you, know, you don't speak to on the VHF because you're kind of aggravated with him because he was maybe pushing your, your gear somewhere or something. But <laughs> everybody's there to help. Right. You know, and that kind of thing. So
0: those things don't change.
1: Yes, sir. Uh, right. That, that is true. Right. The, 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 I think that that's still the core of it all, yep. you know, and there's uh, respect there. And, uh, you know, I still, when I see a boat um, going down the bay, um, I don't know them, you know, maybe. But uh, I don't watch them go right out of sight. I wish them well, and then you turn away. You right. Know? But uh, um, I mean, it's... Uh,
0: and, and uh, you, you, your, your own life. You, one of the columns talks about the tale of the tape, um, kind, huh? of, <laughs> kind of stretching out a, um, a, a tape measure and, and kind of position yourself on that tape. Was that an insight that you had personally and then said, oh, you wrote about it? Or how, how did that story come My about?
1: My buddy Dan McCaffrey at uh, Clock Island Boat Works over in St. George, and Dan is one of those guys, uh, I think the world of him, and there's, oh there's so many I know. people you know <laughs> that I, that I start and I can't stop you know Foy Brown out on North Haven West Lash over in Friendship I mean there's there's tons of them you know all the guys down east and, you know it seemed like I'd walk out of the shops with these little kernels of great inspirations and thoughts and one day uh, yeah Danny said hey hey come in with me and so uh, well I, you folks should just read this but uh, you know we, we pulled out the tape and You know, to see those numbers stretched out there in a line, and then you know, how old do you think you're gonna, you know, how old do you think you're gonna be? How old do you think you're gonna live to? You know, Um, you know, what's your lifespan or whatever you want to say? And so you reel that out, and then, okay, and here's here's the number where you are now, and so there's everything that came before, and here's what you got left, and Mm. ah.
0: (laughs) <laughs> it's going to be a useful exercise
1: for all of us. Absolutely. I want everybody to grab that tape measure right now.
0: <laughs> well, I'd like you to read a final uh, piece, um, one of my favorites in the book, uh, called Somebody's Always Out. Ah. And uh, then we'll close that. with a with a song.
1: Oh, gracious. Well, I wrote this, uh, and it's true. It's true. I don't care any day of the year, somebody's always out somewhere, down the bay, offshore, somewhere, there's somebody's always out. And... Uh, I wrote this column in November of 2001. Um, I mentioned Tiga uh, often in my writings, and Tiga is, she's my best friend. She also happens to be my wife. That's a pretty good deal, right? Yes, it is. Felicity Myers, um, and that's, um, God bless that she is. She's she's my world. And uh, so... Uh, I wrote this in November of 2001, soon after Tigger and I had taken our first road trip up to Cape Breton, Canada together. We'd both been there before, but never together, and we both Mm. loved it, you know. Discovering that our feelings were mutual as we watched this old eastern rig dragger leave Shutter Camp Harbor was no surprise. It was just more confirmation that what we had was meant to be. I know I've told you this before, and I'll probably tell you this again, but I want you to remember this one thing when you're sitting down to your big old holiday turkey, roast pork, or lobster stew. No matter what day of the year it is or how bad the weather might be, there's always somebody out. Somewhere, for whatever reason, whether it's looking ahead or just not wanting to look behind them, somebody is always out. 1994 marked my first Thanksgiving as a divorced dad, and I wasn't doing very well with the prospect of being on my own that day. I knew my brother, Stevie, hadn't gotten out on an offshore lobster trip for a week or two prior to that. When you don't have a French Foreign Legion enlistment office handy, you go offshore. I'd been in the relatively dry offices of Commercial Fisheries News for six years at that point. If you want to make a trip, I'll go, I said. Doesn't matter when. Let's go. Well... We left Thanksgiving morning. My brother, my nephew, Stevie Three, we call him Boris, the unstoppable Timmy McGill, and I. With Boris and Tim running the deck, I was just the extra set of hands, but that was okay. We burrowed up in the trip for the next few days, and there was nothing else to think about. At the time, it was the best place I knew to be. Since then, I like to think I've learned to handle things better. I guess that's one of those examples of going to leave something behind. Recently, I found myself standing on a hillside in Sheta camp Island, on Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, flying a kite with my best friend, Tigger. That's right, flying a kite. Everything in the world that could be done was done, except for the things we decided not to do, and the peace and serenity that surrounded us just cried out for, well, a kite to be flown. So Tigger magically produced one, and we flew it. It was just that simple. The Cape Breton weather on that particular afternoon wasn't that peaceful, though. A northerly wind was squalling up in pretty good shape, and at one point a fairly fierce hailstorm descended upon us as if to say, What are you two fools doing flying a kite up here? Stop that laughing right now! We played for an hour or so, finally giving in to the weather and the approaching darkness. Whilst reeling the wildly diving and swooping kite in, she patted a string just like everyone i'd ever flown when i was a kid including the one my brother coaxed out right out across the thoroughfare so that it seemed to hover over top of russ island tigger and i stood shielding our faces against the weather and watched the kite strike a course for the town of shedder on the far side of the harbor from us it was tigger who spotted the eastern rig dragger first pointing out the old classic as she eased away from the big dock in the middle of the village, headed for the mouth of the harbor. We each knew the story without sharing a word. Most likely, the weather report and an old barometer in the wheelhouse were both calling for the wind to let go by morning, and by striking out for the grounds right then, this skipper was figuring to be fishing, while the rest of the fleet was just starting to run off as it flattened out the next day but there was no denying there was going to be a lousy night aboard that old dragger. The weather was waiting just beyond the last pair of boys that macked the channel out of the harbor. Rollers thundered and busted on the bluff shores of Camp Island, daring anyone to nose out into their path. We cinched our collars tighter and drove our hands deep into our pockets as we watched that old girl catch the first mean one right up under her bow. Ah, ah, up! Ah, she lifted and settled her length right down on top of it gracefully but violently enough to make the spray fly as high as our masthead. It was the kind of fetch-up that makes every cupboard door in a forecastle pop open, sending canned goods crashing into the floor. The next two or three seas rolled under the eastern rig's bilges, but then another sharp, steep one took her right in her teeth, the type that drives the spokes of the wheel right into your gut. An oil-clothed figure secured the deck, moving about with the easy sure-footedness of a veteran of weather. There were a couple of course changes in the first few minutes. We figured the skipper was eyeing the ride and plotting the destination. The reality was the only comfortable ride was going to be the quick one back into Sheddacamp Harbor, and that wasn't happening. One final bit of a swing, and then it appeared she had her course and was headed, taking the weather more on the port bow. We only watched for a few minutes more, then turned away purposefully to avoid seeing the old eastern rig disappear from sight. That's just something you don't do. And when we sat at the wood stove cozy table that night, munching on smoked mackerel and cheese and crackers, we never said it aloud, but we both knew it. Somebody was out.
0: Mm, Thanks again. Thank you. Brian Robbins. uh Writer of uh, many columns in commercial fisheries news now turned into a book called barons um, Brian, I want you to close with a with a song but but uh, barons uh, how'd you get that 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 name I mean I know what barons are, but that that as a column um, um. Giving people different kind of senses of direction and, and oh,
1: I never offered any help to anyone. no you did no, no guidance or anything like that. No, I think I was just trying to get my own bearings. Okay. I mean that was a big deal to come ashore and uh, the first time that I went somewhere uh, for commercial fisheries news and I was wearing sneakers instead of boots, you know i I had a had time with that for the right. first year or two, right,
0: so getting but your own bearings
1: getting my own bearings, I think yeah,, yeah. yeah. but uh. I mentioned Joel White earlier. Mm-hmm. I had a little note from Joel White that first year that I was writing um, that kind of said, good for you, keep it up. And uh, Bob Woodard, who worked uh, for Eddie Gamage, where we had a big steelboat built, my brother's Stacy B. built back in 1981. Bob was a, a wise and kind fellow and a lovely man. And uh, he wrote me a letter, too, just saying, by God, you right. found your place, and mm-hmm. uh, those kind of things, God bless them. That meant a lot, you know? Great. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, let's close with Long May You Run.
1: Oh, yeah, an old Neil Young song. It's not a sea shanty or anything, but it, uh, oh, I guess if I was going to send a wish to anybody uh, out on the water, uh, any old thing you want to do, your hat's in it, you know, go for it.
0: Thank you, Brian. Thank you very much. Brian Robbins, writer and singer and storyteller and many other things. Father, we've come to that time when I want to remind our listeners that you've been uh, listening to a program produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to Brian Robbins. His new book is Barons. It's published by Northwind Publishing in Belfast. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks for Joel Mann for engineering this pre-recorded program. And stay tuned for On the Wing. This is Ron Beard, your host, for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.